Hello, everyone. Welcome to Setter Talk. I am your host, Kyle Warren. This podcast is sponsored by Embark Vet and Dr. Tim's Pet Food. Embark Vet is a DNA testing company focused on helping breeders and purebred dog enthusiasts understand and improve the genetic health of their dogs. Embark's DNA test provides a comprehensive assessment of your dog's genetic health, genetic diversity, and physical traits. Embark's DNA testing process was created in partnership with Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine, and test results are accepted by OFA and other leading canine health organizations. To learn more, visit EmbarkVet.com forward slash breeders. And by Dr. Tim's Pet Food, created by veterinarian and accomplished musher Dr. Tim Hunt. Dog food formulas promoting stamina, endurance, and performance through proper nutrition. Dr. Tim's has been fueling champions for many years in the Iditarod, the field trial circuit, and hardworking hunting dogs all across North America. To learn more about the trusted source of nutrition for the canine athlete, visit drtims.com. Hello, everyone. We have a really great episode of Setter Talk for you today. Our guest is John Pine. He's a very seasoned upland hunter over pointing dogs. Uh, He's done it for many decades, um, all over North America and then some. John and I had a terrific conversation uh, that I'm very excited to share with you. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you do as well. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Setter Talk. I'm your host, Kyle Warren. Today's guest is John Pine. John is a passionate upland hunter and bird dog enthusiast, and he has a wealth of experience traveling across North America hunting with his bird dogs. I thought John would be a great fit for the show, and I wanted to have him on. So uh, here he is. Uh, John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Kyle. Pleasure to join you on Sutter Talk. Yeah. Um, so before we take a deeper dive into your life with bird dogs, um, Give the audience just a, a little general background on yourself, what you do, what you love, you know, uh, where you've been with the dogs. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll dig a little deeper in, into specifics, but just introduce yourself to everybody. Uh, well, I am a uh, hand surgeon. I live in Dixmont, Maine, which is central Maine, um, 61, and I've been here practicing for the last 30 years. Uh, I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. My dad was a professor at the college and not a hunter. Um, Fortunately, a teacher tried to straighten my older brother out when he was a hooligan by uh, using hunting and fishing as a carrot. And uh, he got him into hunting and my brother kindly got me into bird hunting. So, um, I did not start hunting until uh, my freshman year at college. Um, I went to Dartmouth. My brother was two years ahead of me at Middlebury, which was just an hour and a half away. And uh, so I would scoot over there all the time uh, to join him for hunting. Cool. Um, but very quickly, I realized that um, if I was going to hunt, I was going to have a hunting dog. Um, and probably wisely, my first several dogs um, were Labradors. Um, you know, living in a fraternity in a on a college campus, um, 
probably tough to get a, a, a bird dog, the, the running and training it needs. But, uh, my lab was my, my constant companion, my shadow. And, uh, I got into the Labrador training and, uh, I repaid my brother the, the kindness of him getting me into bird hunting by me getting him into dogs. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, I traveled about the country a little bit, going through medical training, med school, residency, fellowship, and then finally came in 1994 to Bangor, Maine area, uh, and uh, immediately got my first pointing dog. Um, so my first setter, my first pointing dog was a setter. It was a bit of a uh, unfortunate situation. It was a just a beautiful little pup I got from Burt Creek in North Dakota, uh, Jim Marty's dogs. Um, and after just about three weeks, it developed a terrible seizure to the point where it went into what they call status epilepticus, which is basically like permanent seizure. Hmm. And he spent a while in the intensive care unit down in Tufts. And basically she lived through it, but her brain was kind of scrambled and was never going to be a bird hunter. Hmm. So I immediately got another setter, this time out of uh, Long Gone Kennels, Lloyd Murray in New Hampshire. He's a a big amateur uh, cover dog trial person for walking grouse and woodcock. And that dog, Ben was quite something because I was, I was pretty clueless. Um, I trained my labs using water dog by Richard Walters. So of course my first training book for Upland was the uh, gun dog by Richard Walters. But that dog, that dog just basically came out of the womb kind of trained. Um, He was a late July puppy and I shot my first pointed grouse ever over him uh, when he was two and a half months old <laughs> and he was steady and he retrieved it to hand um, <laughs> without me doing almost anything. I put him on a check cord once, flushed the quail, he ran, I stopped him with a check cord, he never broke again. <laughs> he was He was something. But he was a he was a wonderful dog, great personality. We had, you know, two kids, two little babies at that point, and he's just we referred to him as Where's Waldo because he was in every kid picture we ever took. <laughs> um, very, even though he was out of American field field trial stock, he would he would have not been a good field trialer. He wasn't a big runner, um, but he was very steady, very cautious the kind of dog that if he hit set, he stopped. He wasn't going anywhere. If the bird moved on, you had to tap on the head to get him to move on, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was fine. It's, it wasn't. Um, well, you know, interestingly, right about that time, I read all the Burton Spiller books and Burton, um, who many consider the, the Dean of Grouse writing. Um, he didn't, care much for a dog like that Mm -hmm. um he wanted a dog that would work a running grouse on its own um in concert with you 
And so when I got my next setter, which was just three years later, when, when Ben was three, I got Coco, also out of American field trial stock, um, a first rate to a uh, Grouse Ridge uh, dog. And Coco was the dog that uh, became sort of the best grouse dog I ever had. And her specialty was how well she handled running grouse. Um, and she would point them, wait till I got there. If the bird moved off, she'd let me take a couple steps in front of her. And then she would go and she would basically foot set it and, until she got body set and pointed. And so the grouse, you know, never got away from her running unless they flew. And it was wonderfully effective. She was a great dog. And basically, I've been trying to sort of reproduce that dog ever since, I, uh, you know, I lost her. She fortunately lived till she was 15. Oh, wow. And hunted till she was 14. Um, but every dog I had after that for quite a while um, would never put his nose on the ground. Uh, they were all out of field trial stock, American field. And they had a, an interesting way of when, uh, when they'd relocate, they would just take off at 90 degrees to where the grouse had sort of wandered away at full speed and run like a hundred yards that way. And I was like, what the heck is that dog doing? And I had a number of dogs do this and I didn't really understand it. So I was, I took one blue quail hunting and saw how when a running covey would take off that by cutting a hundred yards out and then doing a big windshield wiper back, they would hopefully cut downwind to that scent and relocate the bird that way. Mm -hmm. um, can be pretty effective, particularly for a big smelly running covey in open country. Um, but I've yet to have it be effective on grouse. Yeah. Um, and, and I've had, uh, after Coco, I had Coco's son. I bred Coco, the only setter I ever bred. And, uh, I kept a dog who ended up being a field trial champion, um, that I let a professional campaign cause I didn't field trial. I just wanted to hunt. But this dog just had such obvious field trial talents and he was great at it, but not, you know, he, he really wasn't a bird finder uh, and he was never a great hunting dog. And he did either by inclination or training want to be out there, you know, hundreds of yards, you know, even in thick grouse cover. Mm -hmm. um, but then I had uh, several SIDs, including three that I have now that all sort of wouldn't relocate or handle grouse terribly well. Um, and I was almost at the point to be honest with you that I was thinking about getting a Brittany as a dog who would perhaps put their nose down and relocate birds by following some foot scent. Uh, and interestingly, that's, that's sort of when I came across your, your videos and, and your Instagram and saw your dogs at work and unfortunately was able to quickly put the brakes on the Brittany thoughts. 
Uh, and uh, as you know, three years ago, I got a puppy out of your wonderful damn Omimi. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was a, a breeding where the sire was a, a true type scenting dog. Yep. And the, uh, and the dam is a, a tracking dog. And Otis came out, uh, my dog Otis, who's just turned three, came out as sort of a, uh, you know, a kind of a hybrid of the two. He, he doesn't spend, he spends more of his time with his nose up in the air than down. Um, but he will definitely use foot scent and track at times. Um, and as he's gotten a little older, I noticed this season doing a little more tracking mm -hmm. um, when the scent was good. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, frankly, I've been, as I know you are aware, I've been delighted with Otis. He's, he's just a wonderful dog. And, uh, you know, after sort of whatever it's been 15 years or so after losing my kind of best ever grouse dog, um, I finally feel like I have a really good grouse dog again. Um, oh, it's and, been uh, uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, following uh, all your adventures, and that's uh, quite the rundown. See, you you've had um, sounds like uh, six or seven setters over the last pretty much thirty years, and uh, you know, kind of the gamut uh, in terms of um, you, you know having had setters for thirty years, you know, and. And as committed as you are, um, I'm sure, you know, you're you're very much aware of the, the spectrum or the gamut of uh, English setters that exist out there in the world. And uh, sounds like you've you, you've had that uh, spectrum uh, yourself over that span of time. So it's, uh, uh, you know, that's a wealth of experience to for yourself to to know what you um, uh what you like and what you don't like, you know, in your hunting companion, you know? So. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what kind of was what potentially turned out to be unfortunate was that my first two were out of field trial stock and they would have been terrible field trial dogs, but that made that those were some things that made them good hunting dogs. Sure. Particularly Coco, um, you know, I, I actually ran her in a futurity when she was less than two. And she, in a half hour course, she had four grouse solid walk up, grouse gets up right in front of me, finds three of them. She uh, did her thing on um, relocating and then establishing a beautiful point. Um, but, you know, she didn't even place because that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for a dog with a big race to the front. And that was not sure. Coco. Sure. Um, but the problem with that is it, it didn't make me sort of realize that what the field trial is looking for wasn't what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that doesn't, it, it's, you don't want to pick a dog just because they're out of a champion. If, if what the trial is testing for isn't what you're looking for. And mm -hmm. unfortunately it took me way too long to figure that out. Um, but, but you had you a know. good time figuring it out, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. I did. Frustrating at times. Yeah. Um, and of course my training has been 
frankly, all over the place. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever trained two dogs the same. Um, I've used different books, different videos, sure. obviously never quite settling on um, something that I truly loved and believed in um, and sort of accumulate little bits from, from different programs. Um, but that did make me very uh, open and amenable to uh, your trading program um, with your videos that I, I got when I got Otis and I trained him very much according to those videos, adding, adding very little of my own onto it. Um, and, and it worked great with well, Otis, certainly with the dogs you breed. It's, it's a wonderful program. Yeah. You know, I mean, all of, you know, with respect to all breeders that, um, I mean, most of them, we'll say train their own dogs and have experience doing that with, with that type of dog. Always, always best to try to, you know, follow, uh, follow, follow whatever they do to get the most out of their dogs, you know, and, um, certainly, uh, you know, you're a very disciplined person when it, when it comes to being committed to maximizing their genetic potential, you know, you, you spend a lot of time, um, as I see, and as you've shared, you know, with, with, uh, you know, really trying to do everything right to pave the way, um, for success and, um, to, to jump lanes for a moment, um, just to, uh, talk about, uh, a lab on setter talk. <laughs> um, uh, some of my questions I have here, you answered in your, uh, very articulate, um, rundown of your dogs and your start with labs. Um, so, you know, so for me, obviously, I, uh, my relationship with you is, is, uh, kind of in reverse order, right? You know, your most recent dog. So, uh, yeah. interesting to hear, um, the setters that you've had in the past and that you started with labs. And obviously I, I, that, that ties into the question mark that I always have, why does John have this lab, you know? And, uh, uh, you know, tell me a little bit more. I know, um, uh, your your dog you have now is a young dog that you trained up uh, last year and you're super happy with. And I know you had a very special dog um, that was the predecessor to that, to the puppy you have now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know that dog meant a tremendous amount to you, but why don't you just tell us a little about a bit about that dog and um, what you, what you've done with him. Uh, well, I have had more luck with my labs. Um, I've always only had one lab and I let them run, you know, the course of their life before getting a new one. Um, and I, I really have had, uh, you know, 14 years apart, a series of um, four pretty wonderful dogs. Uh, I've been very fortunate with them. Um and they've been great companions and great hunting dogs. Um, I did sort of make the realization that even though my first two were out of America, were out of uh, American field trial stock and they were pretty mellow and very biddable. Um, and I, I did hunt tests uh, starting with my second lab when I was in residency and I really do enjoy the hunt tests. Um, they're a great motivator to train 
you know, as soon as the snow melts and, and not wait till hunting season rolls around and to keep you honest in your training, um, in a non-competitive format. Um, but I saw a lot of sort of over the top desire in the American field trial dogs. Um, and so my lab before this one, my Nigel, um, was my first British field trial lab. And, and that was sort of an, born out of awareness that the British field trials are very different and the things they prioritize, including a calm, quiet, steady, controlled dog that you can take anywhere that also has all the athleticism and retrieving desire you could ask for, uh, was more what I was looking for. Uh, and I got him and, and Nigel was, was spectacular. He, he excelled in the hunt test world. He was a master hunter at two and a half, um, with just me trading him solo and never having, um, not qualified at any test. He was, he was perfect because he was just so biddable. Um, and he was literally a dog. I could walk down the streets of Boston or New York city at heel, sit him in front of a restaurant, go inside, eat, come back out. He wouldn't, he wouldn't budge. Hmm. Um, he was just a, a dog I could take everywhere, which, which I really enjoyed. Um, and so of course, when he died unexpectedly at age eight, um, summer before last i went with another british dog um, and now i have blue who's now a year and a half um, and shares a lot of the traits of nigel that i was hoping to get in the first place with a british dog Um, uh, did train him very hard because you know i didn't i didn't need to do too much setter training last summer um the two summers before it was, it was all, everything was all about training Otis, which I was loving. But, um, last summer I, I spent my time training blue and, uh, did hunt tests with him at the end of the summer. And, um, and he was, he was quite, he was quite good. He, he was passing both senior and master at 12 months old, which is, uh, almost unheard of just because he's so obedient, uh, really wants to do the right thing. So starting with Nigel, um, you know, my team has been that Nigel would stay at heel, a loose heel, and he would keep track of the bird dogs, um, whether it was a, you know, a beeper collar or um, a bell he would keep track of them. And then when a dog would go on point, we'd go find the dog and he would just come in to where he could see the dog and sit and mark the bird I would shoot. And I not only didn't train my setters to retrieve, I kind of discouraged him from retrieving um, because that was Nigel's job and he did it so well. And it was such a sort of a pleasant team to have a, a setter point and Nigel be steady and mark and retrieve and, and everybody enjoyed it. Um, now with Otis, you know, part of your program, your dogs are great retrievers and Otis certainly had it in them. Um, and at that point, you know, I had Nigel, but 
I knew he was a lot older than Otis and that there would be times I'd have Otis without Nigel. And, and so I did train Otis to retrieve and that does create a little problem for Blue because uh, <laughs> <laughs> while Blue is being steady marking the bird, Otis has already got it in his mouth and is coming back with it, um, uh, which I love. And fortunately, yeah. the other dogs don't uh, retrieve, so Blue gets his retrieve. But uh, yeah. I, I, so again, Blue is trained to be at heel and pay attention to the dogs, and, and he will naturally – you know, when he sees a dog on point, he will pull up in honor um, and uh, and be steady 90% of the time um, when I shoot a bird. And, and if it's not Otis, then he'll get to retrieve it. Yeah. Um, but I don't let him flush. He's not a flusher. and But he loves it, just like Nigel did. I think Nigel enjoyed upland hunting more than duck hunting. Um because it was, you know, he wasn't sitting in a blind. He was, he, and of course, he the lab gets to hunt every hunt, you know, while the setters rotate because um, mm -hmm. they're working harder. Um, but it's really, it's a, it's a great team. It's a, and it, it's a fun way to obviously include your lab and not yeah. detract from the setters at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so before we start talking about, um, uh your uh coast to coast adventures a little bit um the one other uh part of your of your team that i feel we we need to mention is your lovely wife sandy i know she's as passionate about your pack as you are um and uh she kind of uh picks up uh some of the conditioning I, I see and she's uh certainly right there with you in a lot of your adventures but uh uh, care to care to give uh, uh, Sandy a, a couple uh, <laughs> a minute or two of, of how she plays into your whole you know master plan and scheme? You guys have a a dog centric life for sure, and I know uh, she loves them as much as you do. It's true, and I'll tell you, I certainly wouldn't have any interesting stories to tell you about bird hunting adventures if uh, if I wasn't married to Sandy. <laughs> um, whether she's with me or not with me, but sort of helping to make things happen. She's, she's at the heart of it all. I, I just, I absolutely lucked out marrying her. She's just a wonderful person and a wonderful partner. And as you said, fortunately, she loves the dogs as much as I do. Not yeah. a hunter. Um, she, to a certain degree, likes coming along on the hunts. Mm -hmm. She's less enamored with grouse hunting because, as you know, everything is trying <laughs> to either poke you in the face or trip you, and you hear the dogs more than you see them, and it's hard to take pictures. But she likes wandering the open country behind the dogs with her camera, mm -hmm. and she's she's quite a good photographer and takes some really uh, really wonderful pictures of, of the dogs and the and the covers and the birds and, and me hunting. And um, I am obviously very thankful for that because I really enjoy having nice pictures uh, yeah. of great bird hunting moments to, to look back upon and, and really stoke my memory um, yeah. to enjoy prior hunts and prior points and dogs, et cetera. 
Yeah. And so, you know, when we, when we do some of our travels, she comes, um, this past fall was kind of a, uh, a big moment. Um, cause as I approach retirement, I've always thought that I would want to spend quite a bit of time, uh, in a, in an RV or a travel trailer. And we got a pull behind travel trailer and took it out West this past September um, my wife's always been not totally sold on the idea. Uh, her first thought was, why don't we just go VRBO to VRBO? <laughs> I'm like, there are no VRBOs in Plentywood, Montana. You know, it's, uh, you gotta, you gotta be able to go away from those kind mm-hmm. of places. And, uh, it turned out she actually enjoyed it, loved it as much as I did. She, neither of us quite appreciated how much we'd feel like our little RV was our home mm-hmm. and having our own bed and not staying in the really low rent, sketchy motels that I tend to stay in mm-hmm. when they're dog friendly in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and what was really important to her was she loves to cook and she loves to cook healthy and eat healthy. And that's hard to do on the road. Sure is. Um, and it was really easy to do with our little RV that has a great kitchen and uh, and we just had wonderful meals. You know, we, we have a, we're on a farm and our neighbor is a, a full-time organic farmer. So we get all the, they, they use our fields. So we get unlimited vegetables. And so she had that thing just completely stocked with great produce. And we ate, you know, vegetable meals and a lot of birds. I was going to say a few, a few birds on the menu, (laughs) a few birds on the menu. And it was wonderful. Yeah. Um, Cool. So that, that was, that was really, uh, really nice for this fall and nice sort of boating well for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, that's, that's, that's awesome. So, but yes. And she, 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 so we have our, our piece of property used to be a cross country, a ski resort mm-hmm. um, so there are trails all over and she takes the dogs out on them or if I'm around I do as well but every day like a 45 minute you know three or four mile where they get to run you know constantly and uh, it's year round conditioning and, and it's it's wonderful for the dogs physical and mental health yeah uh, no that's awesome that's a that's a a great team, and it certainly looked like you guys had an, an awesome fall uh, going all over the place. And speaking of going all over the place, uh, man, how many miles did you drive since September, John? Jeez, <laughs> uh, probably I, – I know the Arizona trip was about 10,000. Yeah. Um, Montana trip was probably about the same. Uh, it's past weekend was I don't know something like 1500 to 2000 yeah. uh, it's a lot of miles my carbon footprint is a disgrace <laughs> um, but damn I love a road trip with a truck yeah. full of bird dogs yeah. and some public land somewhere and wild birds yeah. Um, yeah. doesn't have to be great hunting just has to be some birds and some open land and a chance to run the dogs. Well, uh, I know this, uh, anywhere. Yeah. I know, uh, uh, this season, heck 
in in the last couple weeks you've you've gone from uh you know the far southwest you know uh near the mexican borders all the way up to northern parts of canada and um so you've you've done a lot of traveling in uh, just the last few weeks alone um but uh I guess uh, all the places and, and everything that you've done, and we'll try to hit most of them, but uh, let's start off with, um, uh, I'll have to say, I'm going to make the assumption that the rough grouse is is your uh, number one, but in terms of all the places you travel when you're, when you're not at home, um, what's, your, what's your favorite bird, your favorite place, your favorite bird to eat? Um, you know, share, share us uh, uh, those uh, thoughts. You know, outside of of the king, and I think, you know, if you live in New England or the upper Midwest, the king is clearly the rough grouse. Um, I don't think I have a second favorite because every time I'm doing one of the other birds, I'm enjoying the heck out of it. Uh, and I'm like, God, I love chucker. Chucker are great. <laughs> and if you get good hunt hunting, you're like, oh my god, huns are so much fun. Um, same true of all three desert birds. You know, the the mirrors gets the sort of the press because it sits so well. Um, but but scale quail are a ton of fun with a pointing dog. Gambrels can be maddening but fun. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I. There honestly isn't one that just stands out in my mind. Um, sure. What about a place that? To... What about like you know uh, all the? I mean, you literally hunted all over the country, um, at least in recent years. And you know, is there a place you see in your retirement that you you feel are um, you know maybe even more than a bird? Like you know what I I need as long as I'm physically able, I need to go. I need to go to this place every year. <laughs> you know. Um, well, you know. I... I have purchased uh, 20 acres in Idaho. Okay. And it is in Ashton, Idaho, um, adjacent to the Henry's Fork, uh, because I am a passionate fly fisherman and I love dry fly, you know, fishing and and Mm -hmm. matching the hatch, et cetera. Um, But it's right on the corner between Montana. Wyoming and Idaho. Oh, wow. And it is, it is in striking distance to a lot of interesting bird hunting. Uh, yeah. Whether it's the Montana plains for Sharpies and Huns and Sage, um, or the Idaho, Nevada, Oregon, Chucker scene. Yeah. Um, or Valley quail there. So, um, you know, when it's not rough grouse, I really do love being out west. Yeah. Um, I love the, the big open country. I love the lack of uh, having covers limit where you might go, you know, mm-hmm. hitting borders with covers. But just being able to stand in a spot and look 360 degrees and know, you know, you can walk many days in any direction and still be on public <laughs> land and still yeah. be a bird cover. Yeah. Um, and I, I really do love that about chuckers. Um, they're, 
the fact that their habitat is inhospitable to farming and even a lot of uh, cattle, you know, makes them just the perfect bird for BLM and, and state land mm-hmm. um, and public hunting. And Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of it out there for them. <laughs> yeah. And as you know, Maine has hardly any true public land. Yeah. Um, we mostly count on hunting on our timber industry land, but um, you know, Idaho, I think is something like 67% public. Um, you know, if there's not, if there's not a river and a irrigated farm field through it, there's a pretty good chance it's public. Mm-hmm. And, and the chucker country is pretty spectacular when you're in it. Um, yeah. And uh, sometimes it is very up and down and um, which is why you see a lot of younger guys doing it. Um, but that, that physical challenge is also adds to the pleasure of chucker hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Have you had the opportunity to hunt rough grouse in Idaho? I have, um, not extensively, but Mm -hmm. the interesting thing I found was that I I saw almost every bird that my dogs pointed, Hmm. um, meaning on the ground. Yeah. And which is not something I see a ton of in Maine, certainly sometimes, but, you know, usually the first time you see is what it takes off. Yeah. Um, and so they were sort of not savvy in that respect. Mm-hmm. But then when they flew, they flew just like a grouse ought to. And they mm-hmm. put that one tree in between you and it, or they'd stay so low that, you know, you'd see them, but they'd get up and you'd never have a good shot at them. Sure. So they were still, they were still challenging. They weren't fool's hens in terms of, killing them on the wing yeah um but they certainly weren't as savvy or spooky or or um tendency to run and be harder on the dogs Mm -hmm. um but it is interesting they they just don't get the respect out there that they have in the northeast or the midwest um they are they are a little bit of a different bird in that country Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. certainly still worth hunting but you know if you're in during that country, the the dog people are more interested in blue grouse in the mountains, mm-hmm. I think, than rough grouse in general. Hmm. Uh, and that's a pretty cool bird too. Yeah, a uh, larger bird, correct? Yeah, it's it's second largest to the monster sage grouse. Um, it is, you know, sort of notoriously good table fare, um, but it's up there in altitude, and it's usually in steep country. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of an interesting bird in that it's it sort of what they call reverse migrates in that in September and earlier, it comes down the mountain into meadows where it eats berries and grasshoppers and, and, you know, earlier raises its chicks. And then as it gets colder and snowier in late October, it heads higher in the mountains um, and basically just lives in the evergreens full time, never hits the ground, just eats the, the needles and, uh, and 
you know, stays up there out of hunting territory through the winter. Um, <laughs> so there's sort of a, a relatively small window of opportunity to hunt them um, in September and early October. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, they're kind of in spectacular country. Um, yeah. Definitely hard on the legs. Uh, they like enough uh, verticality so that they can sort of fly downhill quickly to pick up speed and, and get away from avian predators. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're a cool bird too. Yeah, the uh, I, I mean, I, I don't – I love to spend time in that part of the country. Um, uh, be hard-pressed for me to – abandoned grouse during grouse season uh perhaps but perhaps a summer trip but uh i'll tell you a a bird that i've always admired the beauty of it just the way that they look is the uh the huns and uh they just look like a a really um cool little bird and uh, a lot of people a lot of my people that that uh travel as you do they they thoroughly enjoy the huns quite a bit how about yourself yeah, it's a great bird, um, and it's a great bird for pointing dogs because um, it's you know it's a true covey bird that is nervous and does run some, but is certainly well suited for pointing work. Um, and walking in on a covey flush is uh, is still very challenging. You know they get up and out of there really quickly, um, and you know, sometimes you can mark them and go look for reflushes. And, and so they're great. They're just a great dog for uh, a great bird for pointing dogs. Yeah. Um, you know, the sharp tail gets <laughs> a lot of love. Um, I won't quite equate them to woodcock, but yeah. um, there is a good reason why they're a great bird for younger dogs. Mm-hmm. Um they they can sit pretty well, particularly in September, um, when you have the young birds that are still in family groups. Um, you know, if you, if you're a rough grouse shooter in thick woods, um, and a and a sharpie gets up in the wide open cover, you're gonna be pretty upset with yourself if you miss. <laughs> and, and and that's a little bit of a negative to them. Um, yeah. You want a bird, like, honestly, with a rough grouse, it's a thrill every time I see one of those birds heading to the ground. Um, yeah. I never take that for granted. Um, it, it's just every time you get a pointing grouse that I shoot and kill, it's a it's a celebration. Yeah. Um, and and that's – sharp is a great bird, but that is my only knock on them is that it's – it's not as challenging um, Mm -hmm. either for the dog or for the shooter. Uh, But the hunt is challenging for the dog and the shooter. So that, you know, most of the time it's rare that you're sort of really hunt hunting. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of times they're the sort of bird you run into when you're chucker hunting or sharp tail hunting. Yeah. But they're a great bird. No question about it. The, uh, um, you ever have an opportunity to hunt prairie chickens? I have. Um, I've hunted prairie chickens in southern South Dakota mm-hmm. um, and into um, 
northern Nebraska. Um, and basically, they almost behave like a sharp tail. And certainly you find them, you know, in the same habitat. It seems like you're a little more likely to find them on like a cut hay field or a round one um, than just in the wide open uh, short grass prairie of the sharp tail. Um, but I did actually in South Dakota this year shoot a double and, uh, and dog came back with a sharp tail and then with a prairie chicken. So they were fixed <laughs> into the same covey. So that was yeah. a, an interesting mixed double. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're interesting to shoot because they're a different species. Um, but they're, they're very similar to a sharp tail. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so the other uh the other night um you know last several days we were trying to nail down a schedule uh to to have this conversation and uh, it was pretty late at night and uh i had fallen asleep in bed i got up let the dogs out picked up my phone and i saw that you texted and uh the first thing that i <laughs> i see is uh otis with a ptarmigan in his mouth and you're like i've been a, I got bad service. I'm heading back home. Uh, how's Wednesday evening for a for a phone call? And I was like, ugh, and all I'm thinking about is, uh, you know, uh, maybe you and I have had this conversation. You've heard me mention before, but uh, I mean, you know what a single species upland hunter that I am. But uh, you know, I'm, my Norwegian roots and growing up, uh, always hearing about ptarmigan this, ptarmigan that in Norway and. It is the one bird that's on my bucket list, and uh, I'm sure from um, uh, some of the videos that you posted, it was less than ideal in terms of the depth of the snow for uh, uh, certainly the dogs. Um, but uh, you know that 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 was out of all the pictures that I've seen from this season, the one that the one that got most was the last one that you sent me of your season, <laughs> and I was like, oh man. I'm sure it was brutal between the driving and the snow, but I was like, there's, there's a lucky duck as far as I'm concerned. So tell me, uh, yeah. tell me about how, how that experience went up there. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, it's, it's March for God's sakes. I mean, <laughs> by any, by any measure, bird season is over and you're you know wondering when we can go out and run the dogs on some rough grouse or woodcock before the nesting season. And, uh, so the idea of, of making a, a rather large effort for a questionable hunt um, <laughs> makes a lot more sense in March than during normal bird season. And, you know, so what, one of my goals with Otis is to shoot every North American upland game bird over an Otis point. Um, and he's, he's about two thirds of the way through all the birds now just finishing up his third season but three of the birds that he does not have are the three North American species of ptarmigan. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're on my radar in that respect. Um, and when I, so they live way up North. Yeah. Um, in, in Newfoundland, um, you can, you know, hunt them on a road trip by car and go off the road you know, park and hunt from a road and find ptarmigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can certainly do that in Alaska. Um, but in, in north of me in Quebec, 
and Labrador, they're way up above the road system. You know, you gotta you gotta fly into Shefferville and then go to some some fishing lodge or hunting or a big game lodge, and then they shoot a couple of them as an afterthought after you've you know killed your moose or something. Sure. Um, no way you're doing a road trip up there. <laughs> yeah. But they actually like the caribou up there. They actually migrate um, 200 to 400 miles south in the winter to get out of the the worst of the northern Quebec winter and, you know, get down to, I think, an area where it's a little, you know, a little more forested. So they have some trees for cover, for weather protection, um, and a little more food that's not buried in snow. Um, and that brings them just down into the edge of where you could potentially drive to. Um, it's still pretty far up there. <laughs> yeah. um, but the idea of being able to drive to Ptarmigan and the Ptarmigan season goes through the end of April. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit of a, uh, a balance where what you'd really like to do is get there when the snow has had some some freezing thawing cycles so that the dogs can basically run on top of it um but the snow hasn't melted so much that the birds haven't started migrating back north um yeah and i don't you know the weather is gonna change when that is exactly every year but this weekend, I knew it was certainly not now because a week ago they had 33 below, like as a low for like a week straight. I mean, it's cold up there. Um, but I just like I had the four day weekend and I was like, let's just go up and scout it. You know, let's just learn a little bit about it. Um, and, and, when, uh, and when you say let's go up and scout it, you're talking to the dogs, right? Sandy sat that one out. <laughs> Yeah, you know that. <laughs> Sandy is a self-proclaimed fair weather uh, hunting companion and fly fisherman. Um, <laughs> makes no bones about it. Uh, being up in the bitter cold with, when is not her thing. Um, but it was kind of interesting. Uh, there was just, unfortunately, obviously a little too much snow for the dogs to spend a lot of time off of some form of road or trail. Um, that area is heavily uh, forested and managed. And so the roads, there is a road system up there that is kept plowed because they're, they're cutting all winter long. Um, so there aren't many people up there, but there are, there are roads you can drive on. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I was on one road where I drove I don't know, it's like 150 miles over like six hours and stopped and hunted and not a single car went on that road the entire day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so us in this particular set meant me, Otis, uh, Pete, and Blue. Pete is my, my five-year-old setter and, uh, and Blue my lab. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not entirely sure going solo into some of these places where you don't even have a, a dream that you would ever get a self service yeah. is the smartest thing. <laughs> uh, well, you're different. Yeah. You're a different kind of one percent, John. <laughs> <laughs> and I've done that in out. You know, this past 
fall in, in Oregon and Nevada, you know, going back in the country where you're, you're kind of hoping something bad doesn't happen either to you or your truck or to a dog. Yeah. Um, but I tell you, I, I, I wouldn't do that uh, weekend or where I went trucker hunting in November without one of these Garmin inreaches. I was, body. you know, it's funny you say that. Literally, I just had. I'm going to ask him if if he's actually uh, uh, activated that feature uh, in the new Garmin or not. <laughs> I have <laughs> this weekend. I activated it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've carried it, and I've only used it to through the phone be able to send a text to Sandy just to check in or say when I'm coming home and I'm on like a out in the yeah. middle of nowhere in Maine off off the grid um, but Sunday night just as the sun was setting I was going down one of these logging roads and this one was after being on that road where I hadn't seen a car in six hours I came closer back to town um, was hunting an area that does have pretty active uh, timber going on and I was just trying to turn around on this road and it's, you know, just kind of a width and a half or two widths of a car with snow banks. And I tried to do a little K turn in it and my back tires went on what looked like good snow and they kind of sunk in and the center part of the road was just sheer ice. And that truck was not budging. All four tires were just spinning. Um, and I, I had this misguided um, confidence that I could put these plastic tire chains on that I carry with me and they would get me out of something like this. Well, I put those things on and all four tires just did a more awkward spin. And I'm like, okay, I haven't seen a car all day. Um, I think, you know, all I need is a little pull. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think the car is coming along. And so I activated my Garmin inReach SOS for the first time ever. And I got a text right away, um, you know, asking sort of where what or well, they knew where I was. They, they get my GPS coordinates, but what the problem was. And, and I told them and uh, they said they contact the, the RCMP uh, who would get in touch with me via this Garmin and uh, what I didn't realize was that they immediately call your your contacts that you list with them. Mm-hmm. So they called my wife, who didn't answer. So they called my second contact, which is my daughter, Abby. Um, and then she called my wife. And so the two of them are just stressing out <laughs> over <laughs> their knucklehead dad and spouse being stuck on a road in the middle of nowhere in yeah. northern Quebec. And Garmin and, is saying, uh, like, wait, let me check these coordinates. Did this guy really go to this place by himself? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, just the whole concept that the, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is being contacted like, like some – some yeah. Canadian guy's going to show up with a with a uh, a horse, a draft, a draft horse, <laughs> and pull me out. But, yeah. but so my, they're freaking out, and lo and behold, not fifteen minutes after I activated it, a car comes along, a truck. Yeah. <laughs> he hooked it, he hooked it, pulled me out within two minutes, 
and I was back on the road, and I, you know, contacted Garmin and said, "Nope, I'm fine." I, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police had contacted me, and I quickly contacted them. Yeah. And said, "Nope, I'm fine." And they're like, "Cool, <laughs> stand down, stand down." <laughs> and then, but later, when I actually got back in cell phone coverage, and I got these freaked out messages from my daughter <laughs> and my wife. <laughs> so it works. It yeah. does work. Um, yeah. It's a good system, and if you you know, you obviously even if you're traveling with somebody alone makes it even more imperative. But sure. you know, when I was in middle of nowhere Chucker Country in in November, um, you know, I'm I'm sixty miles of dirt road back in from cell phone coverage, um, hunting, you know, half snow covered <laughs> steep hillsides. You know, it it wouldn't take much of a slip and fall uh, yeah. or car problem to get yourself in trouble there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I just, in that country, I was like, all right, I'm just going to carry enough that I could live through the night. Because, you know, if this happens late in the afternoon, I can't count on them finding me before nightfall. Yeah. But um, it may be that it gives me just enough confidence to get myself into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I I recall the uh, some post that you did from November, and there was like a there was a, a happy yet eerie tone to your post. Like I'm still alive, <laughs> survived another day. <laughs> yeah, it was spectacular. That that chucker hunting in November was so much fun, though. And <laughs> Otis just loved it. He he had so much good dog work. When the conditions are right, those birds can give you a lot of good dog work. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, the chucker hunters shoot a lot of chucker. They're, yeah, they're they do. Into limits and tailgate shots. Um, you know, when I'm traveling and hunting, having a lot of dead birds is actually not helpful. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm Just like, need enough for dinner is all. <laughs> yeah, if I'm in a rental car with a cooler and no freezer, um, yeah. so I, you know, I, I kind of, I take pictures and I shoot some, but not too much. Um, but uh, that, that chugger hunting was good, and, and this weekend it was, uh, I guess it was, it was kicking the tires and, and trying out the Garmin, and yes, it worked. And those plastic chains, no, they did not work. So, <laughs> both my daughters have given me a list of things that I now need to have in my truck to help myself get out of trouble uh-huh. uh, before <laughs> before calling the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess uh, there's there's only one species of ptarmigan up that way, right? Yes, up there is strictly willow. Yeah. Um, so you, you can cross that off your list anyway. <laughs> I can, but now I got to go to the rock. Um, to Newfoundland. Colorado? Well, no. Newfoundland, which they they refer to as the rock because it's it's one oh. big rock island. Oh, okay. rock um, has has both willow ptarmigan and rock ptarmigan. Okay. Um, so for for the white-tailed ptarmigan, that's where you need. Those are the high elevation birds that they have in the highest parts of Colorado, Utah, and they have in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to do, you know, one of those backpack way back in 
in the Utah mountains to find them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it just seems like a cool trip to do in in September. Yeah, and that's what yeah. that, that's what I like about this sort of bucket list of trying to get all the birds over Otis. It just it motivates me to go to different cool places um, and and hunt interesting wild birds. Yeah, no. Hey, man, you're you're one of my idols. I I think it's awesome. I and I, I love. And I'm very fortunate that uh, you know you own a, a a pup from me, and I get the I get to see uh, Otis uh, have all these awesome experiences, and it's uh, it's it's really awesome. I mean, for me, like I said, I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm my heart and my brain are are tethered. Uh, to the rough grouse, uh, to a point that is probably not healthy. Um, but, uh, yeah. it's, it's really, uh, it's really awesome to see, uh, you know, my dogs working all over North America and, uh, you know, hopefully one of these days I'll be able to convince myself to, to branch out in some capacity, but, uh, it's, it's, it's awesome to, to, uh, see what you've done, uh, with your dogs and the places, uh, that, you, that you've gone and, uh, obviously, um, you know, you really, you've really gotten to see the diversity in birds and habitat and just geography in general, uh, all through hunting with your dogs. And that's awesome. Yeah. But, but, you know, getting back to your rough grouse point in Maine, rough grouse is basically October one through when the snow sh- shuts you down around Thanksgiving mm-hmm. with no Sunday hunting. And so when you're working and there's no Sunday hunting and you got about a six week season, yeah, there's no way you're not going to travel out of state. Sure. Um, so, you know, that's when you start saying, okay, in January, I'm going to Arizona, New Mexico. And, and mm-hmm. in September I'm going to Montana or South Dakota. And, and uh, that's where there's, that's where there's potential for you without, disturbing your beloved grouse season yeah right it's, yeah. It's to lengthen your season it, it is a hard with your business and all your dogs but yeah um, it is hard you know i mean you i mean you have a pack you know uh you know the logistics involved and again i mean i give you credit for the the travel and that that you do i mean i in the eight years that i traveled from new york to upper michigan back and forth i did it several times a year for eight years i i made exactly 20 trips in eight years and 1200 miles door to door with 10 to 14 dogs inside my F150. <laughs> you know, it was it was the marathon mountain dew overnight drives, you know, just the you know, you learn you learn the rest stops and stuff to to get there as fast as you can as easily as you can with the dog stops and stuff, but yeah, it's a lot of driving when you got to drive with a lot of dogs. Um it definitely uh <clears throat> that's that's the challenging part. Those logistics are uh are, are key to making things still be fun, you know? Yeah. Well, so. you know, earlier in my career, I couldn't take off enough time to drive cross country. Sure. Um, but, but flying was easier back then by a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's in some respects, that's even more of a cluster of logistics. Yeah. Um, you know, I flew out to Seattle to hunt chuckers in, Idaho and Nevada and Oregon last November and flying solo with three dogs and kennels and renting a pickup truck and trying to get in and out of the airport with 
all those dogs. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it's crazy, but um, but in some respects, a three day drive cross country is crazy. So, hmm. um, you know, I, I didn't. There wasn't actually any airlines flying dogs with checked baggage um, that I knew of for the, ever since the pandemic hit. Um, yeah. but Alaskan airlines actually flies and I didn't really think that was all that big a help to me, but they do fly direct Boston out West and, hmm. and they, they kind of fly all over the West. There are, there are bigger airlines, uh, in the West than I had given them credit for. And their, their main hub is not actually in Alaska. It's Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, they have I'm a great reputation. Gonna, I know that. They do. They're always at the top of the sort of uh, customer satisfaction and their handling of my three dogs was exemplary. They were easy, uh, half the price of what I used to pay yeah. when uh, Delta flew and American. Um, so that, that kind of, I'll be using Alaska Airlines uh, more for some trips without the long drive. Yeah. Yeah, of course, my limited uh, uh, other species, upland hunting, uh, you know, came, came when I went last uh, summer to uh, to Italy to, to look at setters over there. And uh, I was absolutely in love with their black grouse. Um, you would find that uh, amazing. Maybe we'll maybe we'll have to make that a date somehow. Uh uh, someday because it was it was i mean they're they're a big bird they're probably like the size of our blue grouse um uh, you know they're every bit of i think you said like the males are like three three and a half pounds um so but they fly like rough grouse they're unbelievably fast once they're off the ground um and their forested habitat is much more open uh i, I would i would imagine it maybe looks a little bit more like some some montana scene with their forests birds and stuff yeah. but uh uh, just, almost blue grousey. Yeah, yeah, Some yeah, yeah. So it was. Uh, I say I want to hunt ptarmigan, and I I do just more from a heritage standpoint. But we the, they kept trying to get us to see rock partridge look just like our chucker. I don't know what the actual difference is, but they look identical. And then they got rock ptarmigan and uh, the black grouse. So we were we were teetering on like the eighty five hundred foot tree line. Um, and if we went dip down into the tree line, we would be finding black grouse, which we found quite a few, uh, a lot actually. Um, but it was, they were in like record drought and, uh, higher you went, like there was just like, there was no berries, there was no water, there was no nothing. And, um, uh, the ptarmigan and the rock partridge were super hard to find. And I was like, we can get off this shale and get back down, get back down the woods. That's where I feel at home. And those birds uh beautiful birds really uh amazing looking birds and uh very different though the the cover it's funny they got like this uh it's juniper it's very mature tamarack forest uh with grassy uh juniper understories and these giant birds burrow themselves into the juniper and um you know these uh these handlers these hunters you know they like beat the beat the juniper with like their walking stick and all of a sudden this giant bird like erupts out the other side of the uh juniper but uh unbelievably fast for how big of a bird it is and uh just beautiful scenery i'm sure uh somebody like yourself would really appreciate that i think about that as as um 
we have a Duke of Pup coming to you in a uh, uh, several weeks, and uh, anxious to you get your hands on that pup and enjoy all these adventures that you have with uh, Otis and your other dogs. Yeah, well, I mean, as as cool as that black grouse trip was and that experience, to me, just the idea of saying, okay, let's see what Otis can do. He's never seen this cover. He's never seen this bird. He hasn't yep. even been on this continent. Um, and it's so cool to watch a dog. I've always maintained that a dog that can handle running grouse um, can handle darn near any other bird out there. Mm-hmm. And it surprises me, um, you know, how they lock up on a ptarmigan on their first contact without ever having seen or smelled the ptarmigan before. And I'm yep. sure they do the same with the black grouse, and it's so cool yeah, uh, to do that. I don't know how hard it is to fly to Italy. I have... Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, you mentioned Boston. Um, the breeder of Duca um, has a very good friend that lives in Boston, and he flies over to northern Italy almost every year with two of his setters to go hunting. Really? That's um, very cool. Yeah. And uh, so, I don't know. I mean, I have this this idea in my head that uh, one of these years in the near future, I'll I'll send a, a, a Duke of Pup on my dog's blood, you know, back to them. And I'll go over there and get to hunt over that dog, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of what my little starry-eyed dreamy ideas <laughs> but yeah. it was definitely uh it was definitely an experience and uh it came i'm always in decent shape but it came kind of like at the start of my conditioning season <laughs> with my right. dogs so yeah. it was uh i did okay i kept up uh-huh. but um you know definitely my my ankles were feeling a little bit rubbery um after yeah. walking uh those kind of mountains i mean even back east you know growing up in upstate new york and the Catskills and adirondacks i i had my fair share of mountain time going up and down but you know these are yeah. i'm imagining much more like uh probably some of the terrain that you, yeah. you've probably hunted chucker and stuff out west in terms yeah. of uh slope and stuff yeah well you know sometimes it's, it's not that hard to go to another country um you know going to a small place in the united states with one or two flight transfers with dogs is a real pain in the butt. Um, But, you know, I've flown dogs from, you know, New York to uh, Argentina, direct (laughs) flight. And it was, it was actually a piece of cake. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I've taken uh, my Nigel down there twice for a real smorgasbord of bird hunting and retrieving. And the last time I went, I took, I set her Pete and we hunted Perdiz and giant Perdiz and uh, it was was a really cool trip. Wow. Uh, Wow. And just not that difficult. Um, The main difficulty was, you know, clearly I wanted to do a direct flight. So I drove to JFK and and flew straight to Buenos Aires. But, uh, you know, these, even international stuff is doable and they don't, actually charge you any more to take a dog to South America than they do to, uh, you know, a, a 500 yard, a 500 mile flight down the coast or something. It's, it's sure. really strange. Sure. Well, I mean, everybody who loves the idea of hunting Alaska, you know, but honestly, um, while I 
absolutely one on Alaska one of these days. Uh, you know, I, I could probably get I could probably get my dog out of Chicago to Italy as easy as easily as I could to Alaska in terms of time. You know, <laughs> yeah, so. exactly, and, uh, and you know, probably cost too. But yeah, um, it's a little bit of a point of contention in this household. Is I don't recommend this, but um, <laughs> Nigel had been to Argentina three times and. And Sandy still hasn't been to Argentina. <laughs> well, you know, I hear about my, that. Oh yes, yep. I, uh, um, you're, you're, you've probably, you're definitely uh, ahead on the number of those conversations that have happened in your household to mine. But you know, my wife has a half brother that lives in Rome, and my wife spent most summers uh, uh, in her teen years uh, going to Italy. And so when I was going there for a quote unquote work trip, <laughs> that didn't, that was a little, that was a hard one to uh, navigate. But uh, needless to say that it's, it's the last uh, European quote unquote work trip that uh, <laughs> I will be going on solo. Um, but, uh, you know, it's hard. Well, Maybe it when the kids a, are older. <laughs> it was definitely a work trip. Um, yeah. Yep. You, you've just been smart enough to pick work that allows you to do something that interesting yeah yeah no it's uh it's good to spend your money where you work and play in the same location but uh it was uh it was for me it was a trip of a lifetime for sure but uh certainly when i when i'm listening to you with all your stories uh that's the only thing i have to compare it to but uh you you brought up argentina um are those uh the birds you're hunting down there are they kind of like uh continental cousins to quail and grouse up here or or what uh what would you compare them to those game birds well um they call them perdiz you know which is spanish for partridge but they're not partridge they're they're like a tinamo or something they're they're in a whole different family than than any game bird we have here mm-hmm. um but you know they hang out in fields and and they run a little bit and they you point them and they shoot you know they fly and shoot so it's it's a it's a proper upland bird and one of the things that was cool is that we were doing different species and locations and it was so varied like one day you you were set up in a spot that felt like you were in Wyoming and the next day you felt like you were on the plains of Africa or something and some <laughs> emu would be running by you. Um, <laughs> it's a very, it was a very cool trip. And, uh, you know, Argentina is, you know, it gets its press as being this place you go to shoot a boatload of birds um, and, and kind of a gluttonous amount of birds, but it doesn't have to be that way. And the upland birds are never that way. It's always, they, they do, limit those quite strictly but um you can go there just for some really cool hunting experiences mm-hmm. um and uh, of course it was even cooler to do it with nigel getting all these south american ducks and, and pete pointing these these totally different game birds um, yeah i think course, they have they have a uh, quite the setter culture down there i i believe i I, I I don't have much uh, to go on off of that uh, myself, but I have heard that they uh, they fancy setters quite a bit. Yeah, the, the well, the, the, you do see pointers and setters in mm-hmm. the places that you know hunt the perdiz. 
Um, they definitely always hunt them with pointy dogs and obviously clients don't bring their own besides mm-hmm. me, but, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I think it's about 50, 50 setters and pointers. You know, I, I haven't seen any of the sort of continental breeds down there, mm-hmm. but, uh, it, it, there's something magical, particularly when you live in the cold Northern climes, um, the idea of being able to get on a plane in spring and get off a plane and it's fall. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it really is kind of like time travel Yeah, to be able to switch a hemisphere and move from, from spring immediately into fall bird season. Yeah. Uh, it, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, well, well, John, uh, I really appreciate, um, you sharing, uh, uh, your experiences, uh, from around the globe, uh, hunting with your dogs. And, um, you know, I'm very grateful that I got to meet you, know you, and, uh, have you kind of, uh, join, uh, my dog family and, uh, you know, love following your adventures. And, um, for anybody that, uh, wants to, uh, check out John and his adventures, uh, he does have a little bit of a social media presence on Instagram, um, you could find him there. Uh, John, what's your, what's your Instagram handle? Uh, I think it's at John pine nine. For some yep. Reason. Yep. Yeah. That sounds uh, right. And, and obviously with a Y pine with a Y pine with a Y. Yep. Uh, yeah. And that, that Instagram is, is basically kind of like my diary that, yeah. uh, I use to, to put stuff in that I want to go back and look over and, and remember some some of the best memories through some good photos and and a word or two about what was happening. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, I'm obviously right now incredibly excited about this pup, this Duca pup that I'm going to get from you in about six weeks. Yeah, uh, yeah. Can't can't wait to train them, and uh, I, I think your Paint River dogs. Uh, are the best just love them yeah well i'm i'm super excited about this uh litter on the ground right now too uh i mean you've you've had the opportunity to hunt over name so you know you know her very well and uh most of my dogs for that matter and um uh i obviously it's it's every breeder's goal and dream to place as many of their dogs as possible uh in homes like yours so uh i'm very grateful to uh um to to have uh to have you uh getting another one of our dogs so uh thank you very much for that and um you know i uh again i'm super excited that we got to have this conversation and uh get to share it with uh, everybody else in the upland community that's interested in uh taking a listen and uh for everybody uh thanks for listening to setter talk and uh till next time you have a a great day Mm -hmm.